Friends, keep your Bibles open there at John 11, and you might also like to take out your service sheet, and inside there is uh, an outline of tonight's message, and it's a big chapter, lots happening in it. I won't be able to cover off everything that happens in it, so feel free in your notes to write down any comments or questions. If you want to chat to me afterwards or during the week, I'd love to be able to share with you more uh, from this incredible part of God's uh, Word. Let's pray as we spend this time together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's inspired by your spirit and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness. We thank you for the clear reminder in this your word tonight of the power of our Lord Jesus. Help us not just to be impressed by it tonight, but to believe it in our hearts that we might trust in Jesus for the life that only he can bring. Amen. As I said at the beginning of our service, our family spent the best part of last month uh, on a mission trip in Zambia in Central Africa. And uh, although it was an intense three-week period, right towards the end we had some rest and relaxation and we decided to go on a safari across the border from Zambia into Botswana. And you've probably seen some of the photos of the elephants and the giraffes and it's absolutely beautiful. And what really was a dream come true almost didn't come to a dream come true. It was almost a nightmare. For as we crossed the border from Zambia into Botswana and had to engage with immigration, we were stopped. And the immigration said, in Botswana, we take the entry and the exit of children in our country very seriously because of child trafficking in Central and Southern Africa. And so they said, have you got birth certificates for your three children who are with us? to prove that they belong to you because their passport is not enough. It doesn't say who their parents are. These could be anybody's children and you could be bringing them in and wanting to take them out. You need to show us the birth certificates. Did we have the birth certificates with us? Of course we didn't. And at that moment, as a parent, this overwhelming sense of fear and paralysis just came over me. I, I don't know what to do. I, I don't have the birth certificates with me. W what does that mean for our children? Do they have to stay here? In We're not going to leave them here. So does that mean our whole family now has to migrate to Botswana? What does that mean for Minchinbury? And what does that mean? You know, all of those weird and crazy thoughts just go into your mind when you feel like there is no hope, that you don't know what the future looks like. And then Ness was calm and she goes, it's okay. Tim and Raywell are looking after our house. We could get them to find the birth certificates and send them to us. We can't get them to send the birth certificates. It's going to take weeks for the... No, 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 they can... Okay. So ignoring the time differences and waking up poor Raywell to go hunting around in our house for birth certificates, Raywell found them. There is hope. Hope in the midst of darkness. Raywell came through. He took a photo of each of our children's birth certificates, sent them through. We could show immigration... <laughs> We're all home and we all made it. But when you feel like there is no hope, and I don't know if you've been in that place before, I'm guessing many of you have been in that place where you feel like there is no hope. It is a really dark place to be, isn't it? Emotionally, psychologically and spiritually as well. There's a famous saying that says, where there is life, there is hope. In other words, no matter what you're going through, whether you're sick, whether you're overwhelmed with anxiety or addiction, as long as you are breathing still, there is hope that things might get better. 
But also hidden in that quote is an assumption that when there is no longer life, there must be no hope. Because if hope is dependent on life, then when there is death, there must be no hope. Death is the destroyer of hope. Or is it? Because that's the question we're going to wrestle with and see the Bible answer in the most wonderful way tonight. That yes, you can say where there is life, there is hope. But for the Christian who follows Jesus, it's equally true to say that where there is death, there is hope as well. And we're going to see that tonight. John chapter 11 is our story. It's the story of Lazarus and it's probably one of the most well-known of the miracles that Jesus does in the Gospels and particularly the Gospel of John. But you need to know the context of John chapter 11 because it really does shape and magnify what happens in this chapter. It follows chapter 10 where Jesus declares quite openly and clearly, I am the good shepherd, the one who provides, the one who protects, the one who loves his sheep. And at the end of John chapter 10, uh, we're told that Jesus leaves where he has been ministering and goes across the Jordan and is staying there. And he's about a two days journey, a two days walk from Jerusalem and Bethany where the events of John chapter 11 happen. And the chapter begins with Jesus hearing news. The good shepherd hears news that one of his sheep is hurting, that one of his sheep is sick and needs healing. Verse 1, now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, that is Jesus, Lord the one you love is sick. And so here is an opportunity for the good shepherd to be the good shepherd, to spring into action and to to run down to town and do the good shepherd thing, to provide, to protect, to show his love in action and heal Lazarus of his sickness. But then what happens is completely, not just unexpected and surprising, but almost shocking. Because have a look what happens in verse 5. There is a delay. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he, Lazarus, was sick, Jesus stayed two more days in the place where he was. What? No, no, no. That's not what the good shepherd is meant to do. He's meant to hear that one of his sheep needs help and run, catch the next flight, do whatever you need to do to get to your sheep and to look after them to provide and protect. But that's not what Jesus does. He waits for two whole days whilst a sheep that he loves, and we're told at least twice in these early chapters that Jesus loved Lazarus, and yet he waits. What is going on? Is he really the good shepherd? Does he really care for his sheep? Well, after two days, Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 7 and says, let's go to Judea again. Okay, now's the time for us to go. What's changed from now to two days previously? Well, we're told in verse 11. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's just fallen asleep, he'll get well. 
Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. What's changed in the two days? Lazarus didn't get better. Lazarus got sicker and sicker and died. It's as if Jesus was waiting for Lazarus to die before he moves. Now, that doesn't sound like the good shepherd. And then it gets even a bit more shocking in verse 15 where he says to his disciples, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there. What do you mean you're glad? How can you be glad when one of your beloved sheep has just died? It doesn't make much sense unless you understand who the good shepherd is. And unless you think that there must be something bigger and better and more glorious, incredible, even beyond death, that this good shepherd can do. And Jesus has already given an inkling of this bigger, more glorious purpose in verse 4 to his disciples, where he says to them, Hey guys, this sickness will not end in death. Oh, it might start in death, but it won't end in death. But it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There is a bigger purpose that Jesus has in mind beyond the grave. The divine delay leads to what I'm calling the human cry. For after these two days of waiting, Jesus and his disciples set off and again after two days travel, they arrive in Bethany near Jerusalem where Mary and Martha and Lazarus used to live. And in verse 17, we're told that Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for how long? Four days. He's been dead four days. And if there's two days travel and you think if Jesus waited two days, then if Jesus had left as soon as he got the message, it would have been tight. Maybe it would have been too late anyway. We, we don't know for sure whether he would have got there in time or not. But that's not the point. And it's not how Mary or Martha see it when they go out to meet Jesus when he comes into Bethany. They both come to Jesus differently. Martha comes out first. Mary stays seated at home. And I don't think we're meant to read too much into that. Everybody grieves in their own way. But they both say the exact same thing to Jesus. Did you notice it? Verse 21, Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then Mary says the same thing in verse 32, in the midst of tears, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And I don't think we're meant to just see an air of sadness or disappointment in these ladies' voices. We're meant to see, I think, an anger and a frustration. Lord, you are the good shepherd. Where have you been? You said that you love our family, that you're committed to our family, and yet you... What have you been doing? Nothing. You waited and it cost our brother his life and us these tears. That's, I think, the emotion in that, Lord, if only you were here, then things would be different. And how many of us have echoed that same cry to God in our prayers? God, if only you had answered my prayer when I prayed all that time ago, my mother wouldn't have died. God, if only you would have helped me when I asked for it, 
I would still have my family. My marriage would be together. I'd still have a relationship with my kids. God, if only you would have acted when I asked you to, I'd still have my job or a house or my money or whatever it might be. God, if only you had done something. I know that I've said those words many times and I'm sure many of you have as well. But not all hopeless. Martha, I think, still has some hope within her. Because in verse 22, after she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, she says, yet even now, verse 22, yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And when I first read that, I thought, oh, she believes that Jesus is going to raise him from the dead and that they'll all live happily ever after and it'll be a wonderful end to the story. But I don't think she does believe that. Because in the conversation that follows with Jesus, Jesus says he is going to raise, you know, raise Lazarus back to life. Martha says, yeah, I know that he's going to be raised back to life at the end, on the day of resurrection, when everybody will be raised from the grave and come before the judgment seat of God. Yes, Jesus, I know I'll see him again on that day, but not this day. There is no hope now. I have to wait till then. And later in the story, when they go to the tomb and Jesus tells Martha, roll the stone away, she hesitates and says, no, no, we don't want to do that. The body is decaying, it's gross. We don't. She's not expecting a miracle. Yes, she has some hope for the distant future that she'll see her brother again in heaven, but not this day. There is no hope this day. And I think we can be a little bit like that too, can't we? As Christians in our culture, we can believe in theory the power of God, hypothetically. We can believe his promise that, yes, one day in heaven, things will be better. But now in the present, no, I just have to live with my alcoholism, my addiction, my failed marriage, my dysfunctional family. God can't do anything about that. I just have to live with that. And I think different cultures of the world express differently god's activity in the world in the present some can so overemphasize god's activity in the world and can overpromise what god never promises and i saw that all too often in africa where pastors and teachers would promise health and wealth and prosperity to preach to christians if they just believe things that the bible doesn't promise but i think in our culture we can have an under-recognized an under-recognized view of what god can do and the reason I think that is because of our prayerlessness. We just don't pray, do we? Because we just don't expect God to do anything. Oh, yes, we believe in heaven, everything will be great, but now we just have to pull up our socks and just deal with it. And so we don't ask God to do the miracle. There is hopelessness. Mary felt it, Martha felt it, but also the crowd does as well. If you jump down to verse 37, for a third time, you get almost the same question. Couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes have kept this man from dying? An air of hopelessness. Now we know that Jesus is in complete control of this situation. We know what the end of the story is going to be. We know that Jesus has allowed this whole event to happen to Lazarus and his family for a bigger and more glorious purpose. But do you know as the story continues, verse 33, verse 34, 35, 
even though Jesus knows what's going to happen, even though he's in complete control, he's not immune from feeling the pain and the sorrow and the grief that Lazarus's family are going through. Have a look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her, that is Mary, crying, and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And then everybody's favourite memory verse, John eleven thirty five, because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus cried. So the Jew said, see how he loved him. Does the good shepherd care? Does the good shepherd feel anything about this situation? Oh yeah, you see it. The divine son of God brought to tears at the death of a loved one. Even though he knows in five minutes time he's going to call him out of the grave and he's going to live. And even though he knows that, he's still brought to tears in this situation. Because he knows that death is not meant to be. That this is an obstruction in God's good creation. That there should be no sin, there should be no suffering, there should be no pain, let alone death. And he laments and he weeps over it. Even though he has absolute confidence that things are about to change. And we know that experience, don't we? As a pastor, I've had to take that many funerals of Christian brothers and sisters that I've lost count. Go to my own mother-in-law's funeral. And there are plenty of tears that are shed in those funeral services, even if you have absolute confidence that you're going to see them again one day in heaven. Isn't that true? As brothers and sisters in Christ, even if we bury a loved one, we know with absolute confidence that we're going to see them again in heaven. But that doesn't make the tears go away. It gives some hope in the midst of the tears, but it doesn't take them away. There is a real humanity to weeping with those who weep. But if Jesus really is the good shepherd, then he needs to not be able to just walk beside the sheep along quiet waters, Psalm 23, but lead them through the valley of the shadow of death and out the other side. And I think that's why Jesus deliberately delayed his coming to Lazarus. Why he deliberately waited till Lazarus was surely dead. After four days, the body is decaying and starts to smell. Jesus knew he was dead and he is going to prove to everybody that he really is the good shepherd. That he's going to walk alongside this man through the valley of the shadow of death and out the other side. To this good shepherd, death is not the destroyer of hope, but just another occasion for the good shepherd to walk with his sheep. And that's important to remember. And I wonder if that's why Jesus gets angry. <coughs> Did you notice twice we're told that Jesus gets angry? In verse 33, after he's talking with Mary, we're told that he is angry in himself and deeply moved. And I think there the anger is not directed at Mary. I don't think Jesus is ever angry at these ladies. But he's angry at the presence of death and pain and sorrow. But in verse 38, we're told that he's angry again. 
specifically, it says when Jesus was angry again. And you notice it follows the unbelief of the crowd who said, couldn't this guy who opened the eyes of the blind do something about this? And we're told that Jesus is angry again. He's not just angry at the presence of sin and sorrow and death. He's angry when people think that he has no power or authority over it at all, that he can't do anything about it. And he's even just said to them in verse 25, which I think was not just in the hearing of Martha, but everybody, I am the resurrection and the life. Even if someone dies, he can live. But couldn't you who opened the eyes of the blind do something here? I just said that I am the... And he's angry when people refuse to see who he is. Anyway, Jesus soon puts his words into action. The human cry leads to Lazarus rising. Verse 38. Some beautiful words here in this story. Then Jesus, angry himself again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, he's already decaying. It's been four days. I don't know about you growing up, but I used to read this in the King James Version, and it has a really interesting translation of that last little phrase where it says, uh, in the King James Version, it says, he'd been in the tomb four days and he stinketh. It's true. Four days, the body is starting to decay. It would have smelt and Imagine, you know, Mary or Martha saying, Lord, you should have smelt his feet when he's alive. You do not want to open that stone and go in there. But Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, and it's quite a comical prayer because it's a prayer that's not really a prayer. Did you notice that as Ness read it out? He's praying, but he's really just interested in people wanting to know that God has sent him, that he is the powerful good shepherd, where he says, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I've said this so that they may believe that you sent me. And then verse 43, after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Lazarus, come out. Yes, a loud shout. And what happens? The dead man gets up and walks out at the command of the good shepherd. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd and the shepherd knows his sheep and hear the sheep follows his voice. Uh, some commentators have suggested that it was a good thing for Jesus to be specific in calling out Lazarus by name because if the good shepherd, the strong, powerful Messiah just said generally, come out, everybody would have come out of their tombs that day. And so it was nice that it was just Lazarus that Jesus was just focusing his attention on. But what an incredible miracle. And I don't know if you've ever tried to picture what Lazarus would have looked like coming out of the tomb, kind of maybe like a zombie and all the flesh starting to fall off. I don't know whether in an instant his flesh just suddenly went back to normal and he looked normal, but some of the kids' Bibles that you see, see are really astonished. Lazarus like, I have no idea what just happened and it's all a bit crazy. Now, when it comes to these stories in the Gospels, I think we are invited as readers to put ourselves in the story and resonate with some of the characters. 
We've already seen that in the response of Mary and Martha, there is a resonation to our human experience. We often say to God, Lord, if only you did something, answered my prayer, whatever it might be. There is a, a human cry that we echo. And remember, Jesus himself, in a very short period of time, will say that same human cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a resonation there that's appropriate, that pain and sorrow and death are not meant to be, and it's right to say, why? Why? We can also resonate with Jesus and the empathy that he shows to the grieving, that he weeps, even though he knows everything and he knows what the end is going to be, he still weeps with those who are weeping. And I wonder whether that little verse, verse 35, becomes the foundation of the apostolic command for Christians to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. There is an empathy that we ought to show to one another. But the character I think that we're meant to resonate with most in this story is not Mary or Martha, not even Jesus himself, but Lazarus. We are all Lazarus. Many people look at themselves like Mary and Martha first looked at Lazarus. He's just sick. He just needs some help to get better and then everything will be okay. And so often we view our lives and the lives of our family members who don't know Christ just the same way. They just need some help. Go to a better school or get a better job or move to a different site. They just need some help and then life will be good for them. But the reality is, according to the scriptures, that those who are without Christ are not just in need of help, they are dead, spiritually speaking, and need resurrection. Not just renovation, but resurrection. And I think one of the greatest hindrances to seeing change in your life and change in your family's life, the greatest hindrance to seeing renewal and transformation is that people refuse to die. And by that I mean refuse to acknowledge that they are already dead and need a miracle from God to bring about change that's lasting in their life. Like Lazarus, we need to realise that we are dead and we stink. Some of us more than others, but that is true. We need Jesus to resurrect us. And praise God, he can. Because this resurrection of Lazarus is just a shadow, is just a, a signpost pointing to an even greater resurrection that will happen in a few days' time from this event where Jesus himself will rise from the dead. Like Lazarus, Jesus would die, but not because of his own weak body or because of his own imperfections and sin even. We know that Jesus died because he took upon himself the weaknesses and the imperfections and the rebellion and sin of the entire world out of love to free us from it. And when he rose again from the dead, unlike Lazarus, Jesus would never die again. Do you find that interesting? If Mary and Martha continued to, to live for a long time, potentially they had to bury Lazarus again. That he would have had a second funeral at some point. Isn't that kind of horrible to think through? But it's true. But when Jesus rose from the dead, unlike Lazarus, he rose to never die again so that he could guarantee that promise to Martha in verse 26, a promise that still applies to you and for me today, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. I am the resurrection and the life. 
I am your life. If you put your trust in me, you get what I have. You get life forever. Not just a renovation, but a resurrection. And so the question to Martha is still the question that you need to answer today. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Will Jesus call your name and you come out? Mitch, come out. James, come out. Tim, come out. Sandy, come out. Will you come out? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is calling all of your names because he died for each and every one of you and he rose again can guarantee life to all of you if you would just listen to his voice and come out. Now, if you're just visiting us tonight and that's the first time you've heard this news, please don't rush home without talking to me or Chris or another member of our church and find out what that means because it's the most important thing. But Jesus is calling you to life Don't mess that up. But let me just finish with one final encouragement to to most of us who have listened to the voice of our Good Shepherd and have come out and found life in him. This has got to change the way you see things. It's got to change the way you see people. And it's got to change the way you think about God and his activity in your life and the life of your family and your friends and indeed our world. Like Martha and Mary, we can have doubts, we can have questions. Lord, if only, why haven't you? All of those different things. We can, God, why aren't you doing what I want you to do? Why are you delaying? And you think about it, Jesus said that he was going to return and fix everything. How long has it been? A bit longer than two days. It's been 2,000 years at least. Why is he delaying? Why isn't he coming and just fixing my life and taking me to heaven where everything is going to be great? Why is he delaying and allowing me to put up with all of this sorrow in my life and the life of my family and friends, indeed the world? Do you know why he's delaying? Because he has a much bigger and more glorious purpose than your own comfort. He wants to bring people back to life who are dead. The reason Jesus has delayed his coming a second time, is so that your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your friend at school, your colleague at work, your next door neighbour might hear their name and Jesus saying, come out and find life. You know, if Jesus returned 100 years ago, none of us would be here tonight. None of us would be in the presence of God. None of us would be singing his praise because we wouldn't be here. It is God's grace and God's mercy that he delays. And sometimes we only focus on the problem and the conflict and the frustration. But there is mercy and grace in a delay so that more people have an opportunity to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd, to come out of the grave and live. Do you see it? Do you believe it? Easter is two weeks away where we're going to talk about life from the dead. Invite a friend this Easter to hear this good news. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for who you are and for what you have done for us in your Son, Jesus. 
we know that he really is the good shepherd. We see that so clearly in John 11, that he does walk with his sheep even through the valley of the shadow of death and then out the other side. Forgive us for the times when we think that you can't do anything in our life. Restore to us hope tonight if we're feeling hopeless. Restore to us confidence in your presence with us no matter what we are going through. And Father, lift up our eyes and open our hearts to our friends and our family members who don't know the Good Shepherd, who are dead. Please, Father, by your Spirit, call out their name and move in their hearts, even tonight, to respond to you, to give their life to their Good Shepherd and know the joy of life with him. In your Son's name we pray. Uh, I'm just going to give us a few moments now to uh, finish gathering our thoughts. Uh, maybe you feel like you need to pray uh, slightly on your own now. Um, if you are quite quick at gathering thoughts, I've already done that.